podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast of what a Tanapoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for joining, and I hope everyone is doing well. We all got some closure with the Serie A campaign coming to an end after 49 long weeks, and with that, we can go back to our normal format on the podcast, which is three parts, and starting next episode, we'll go back to our normal length, which is about 30 to 35 minutes. So today we'll start with the latest news around Serie A, Napoli, and Europe. In part two, we'll recap the final rounds of Serie A and Serie B. And in part three, we'll review Napoli's win over Lazio on Saturday. Starting with Serie A, league president Paolo Dalpino and CEO Luigi De Siervo confirmed on Monday that the 2020-2021 campaign will begin on September 19th and conclude on May 23rd. Though Juventus, Lazio, Milan, and Atalanta preferred to start on the 12th, the majority of the clubs picked the 19th, with a possible shift of the Christmas break. In Napoli news, the big question is whether Lorenzo Insigne will be fit for the Champions League clash on Saturday against Barcelona. Insigne underwent tests on Monday. According to the official injury report, the test revealed a partial lesion of the long adductor tendon in his left leg with bone edema. The club will monitor on a day-to-day basis. I'm no doctor, but from what I can gather, that's basically a thigh strain, which generally takes three to six weeks to heal depending on the severity. Bone edema basically means swelling or inflammation. That would suggest that Insigne probably won't be fit to play on Saturday, but according to his agent, Vincenzo Pizzacane, Insigne's camp are very optimistic. He doesn't feel the pain, and he'll do everything he can to be at Camp Nou on Saturday. I wouldn't be shocked if he tries to play because he's not going to want to miss this match and then ends up getting subbed off early because of the injury. Staying with the Champions League, there was some speculation that Arkadouj Milik will be left out of the squad and that Fernando Llorente would be included in his place. That appears to be not entirely true. It looks like Milik is in the squad submitted to UEFA, however Llorente is as well. Amin Yunus, Fauzi Gulam, and Kevin Malqui are all out. Moving on, just before we recorded our last episode, we got the official announcement of Victor Osimhen's signing. In fact, we had to re-record the Napoli news segment just to capture that. But because that story was so fresh, we didn't get to capture the reaction to the signing. So I'll go over that quickly here. We'll start with Osimhen himself. He's very excited to be joining Napoli, while also very grateful to his former club Lille. He compares the city of Napoli to his hometown of Lagos in Nigeria, Speaking of which, if you haven't heard the episode of the Far From Vesuvius podcast, you definitely want to check that out. They had an exclusive interview with Oma Akatugba the day before the official announcement where he talked all about Osimhen and Lagos and Nigeria. Oma's personal story is just as interesting as Victor's. He talks about his journey and how he ended up becoming Victor's media person. In that role, Oma coined the phrase Prince of Naples. I'm not terribly concerned about the price tag considering that Napoli have signed Osimhen for five years and I actually published an article on World Football Index about that and why I think this is a calculated risk. But what does worry me is the amount of pressure we as Napoli Tifosi put on our new signings to succeed. 
I get that everyone is excited, but that does make it more difficult for these young players. I think that Laurentiis recognizes this as well. He gave a long interview with Sky where he talked about a number of different topics, which I'll get to in a moment. But on Victor Osman, he said, we do not expect everything from him immediately, and he is not a 25-30 to 30 goal scorer per season, which is good to hear. It means the club recognizes he'll need some time to acclimatize, to learn the language, to develop chemistry with his teammates, and so on. Osman's agent, William Davila, also spoke after the announcement. He said Osman is very happy with the transfer and is looking forward to getting to work with his new team. He confirmed there were other interested clubs in England and Germany, but he did not name which ones. In terms of Osman's qualities, Davila said he's a natural goal scorer. He attacks space and does not wait for the ball to come to him. That's really important to me. We've heard Gattuso talk about the importance of attacking space, so Osman should be a good fit in that regard. Speaking of Gattuso, Davila said he thinks Gattuso will improve Osimen, and Gattuso was amongst the names of staff that convinced Osimen to join Napoli. He said that Laurentiis was nice and put Osimen at ease. Juntoli made non-stop calls. Gattuso established a good feeling and Osimen is looking forward to working with him. He also gave Napoli scout Maurizio Micheli credit. The players also made a difference. We know about the conversation Osimen had with Kaladu Koulibaly about racism. Osman spoke to other players as well, where Davila said he received a beautiful welcome. Finally, on the number 9, Davila said he is a goal machine, but truthfully, he doesn't really care about the number on the jersey. He just wants to go on the field and score goals. As we mentioned last episode, as part of the deal, Napoli sent three of their youth players to Lille, including Primavera captain Claudio Manzi. Manzi posted a farewell message on Facebook. He said, Good morning, everyone. I want to thank all the people who have been close to me in these days but especially yesterday by sending me a simple message. I thank even more those who have not. I don't know if I'll be able to reply to all the comments and the statements, but this is not what matters. The important thing is that I have seen them. This is not the point of arrival, but the beginning of an immense mountain to climb. Always continuing with sacrifices, willpower, head and heart. Never give up in life. I mentioned the Laurentiis' recent interview with Sky. In addition to Osman, he covered a number of other topics. De Laurentiis talked about Arkadush Milik. He said he has always been on the market and that since he's known Milik, he's been asking to renew him. But whenever he asks, Milik just looks at him and doesn't respond. He added that Milik will go to the highest bidder. He will not take a discount. Otherwise, he will stay and have to earn the consideration of the coach. Speaking of the coach, De Laurentiis said he is a real man, but he is also a former player who has won a world title. He doesn't want revenge and he doesn't have anything to prove to anyone. On Koulibaly, he said he is an excellent person and an excellent defender, but there comes a time where you need to go your separate ways. He said, so far no one has offered $90 million, suggesting that that is his purchase price. On Chiro Immobile, challenging for Iguain's record, he said Immobile is from Torre Annunziata, which is a city in Napoli, so why should he feel sorry if he passed Iguain? De Laurentiis said he would be pleased for Immobile, who is now a world-class player. He was also asked about Sari winning a title with Juventus. On that, he said it's normal for Juventus to win the Scudetto, and he's happy for Agnelli. He did say that Sari will always have a place in his heart for the three years he gave Napoli, and he will always thank him for that, but if he was Sari, he would have reasoned differently. If he stayed, he would have won Napoli's first Scudetto, I assume he means in the De Laurentiis era, perhaps since the last one in 89-90, and that Sari would have risked less with De Laurentiis than what he is risking now at Juventus. That last part is absolutely true in my opinion. Even though Juventus were at or were very close to the top throughout this campaign, all along there were rumors and demands from some Juventini, not all, for Sadi's head. 
Finally, on the budget, he said with Napoli not playing in the Champions League, this will be one of their first years in the red. In Europe, Arsenal defeated Chelsea in the final of the FA Cup 2-1, so Arsenal have secured their place in the Europa League group stage. In France, PSG defeated Lyon in the final of the Coupe de la Ligue, or the League Cup, in a shootout. Neither side scored in regulation time. This match should be of interest to Serie A fans, as it was a competitive match between two clubs who haven't played competitive matches in a while. PSG did play in the French Cup final recently, but other than that, neither side has played a competitive match since Ligue 1 was cancelled, and each of these sides play a Serie A team in the Champions League. Juventus will be concerned that Lyon held PSG to a scoreless draw, as that's all they need to do to eliminate Juve from the Champions League. Meanwhile, PSG struggled to score against Lyon, which bodes well for Atalanta, who drew PSG for their quarterfinal fixture. Moreover, PSG have picked up some injuries. Kylian Mbappe suffered an ankle injury in the French Cup, so he's doubtful for the Champions League. Then in this League Cup final, Mauro Icardi, Levin Kurzawa, Thiago Silva, and Marquinhos all picked up knocks. After the match, PSG manager Thomas Tuchel said that Marquinhos and Thiago Silva had cramps, while Kurzawa picked up a little injury, so we'll see who plays in the Champions League. Angel Di Maria will also not play that match due to suspension. That will do for the news. In part 2, we'll recap the latest action in Italian football. Okay, so next we'll cover the latest action in Italian football, starting with Serie A. We'll start with the battle for second place between Inter and Atalanta. These sides were also preparing for European competition. Atalanta have PSG in the final 8 of the Champions League, and Inter have Hetafe in the final 16 of the Europa League. Inter wore their new tablecloth jerseys for this one. They shot out of the gate. In the opening minute, Lautaro played a square ball into the box. Lukaku misplayed the ball, but it fell for Barella whose shot was blocked and went out for a corner kick. On the corner kick, Danilo D'Ambrosio scored his second in as many matches. The defending on the corner was pretty awful. Golini appeared to crash into Gozins, leaving an empty goal for D'Ambrosio to head into. Golini was injured on the play as well and was replaced by Marco Sportiello. Ashley Young doubled Inter's lead in the 20th minute. He cut in from the left side and struck the ball with the inside of his boot to bend his shot into the bottom corner from pretty far out. The Atalanta defending was way too passive and they gave Ashley Young way too much space to get his shot off. The goal reminded me a little bit of the goal Lautaro scored against Napoli where the shot was from a distance. It wasn't hit terribly powerfully, but it was accurate enough to beat the keeper. There really wasn't much action after that beyond a few half chances from Ashley Young and Roberto Gagliardini. Lukaku had a shot go over the bar and Young, who was moved to the right side, had a shot straight at Sportiello. For Atalanta, Malinowski and Luis Muriel made an impact off the bench. They had a few half chances as well, but Inter did a good job of getting in the way and blocking shots. Malinowski also had a few shots go wide of the goal. Robin Gozins had Atalanta's best chance late in the match after Luis Muriel picked out his run in the box, but Gozins poked his shot just wide of the far post. If there was ever a match that needed fans to help motivate their side, it was this one. The final score was 2-0 for Inter. 
Atalanta's performance was lackluster, it was flat. In fact, even though this was their only loss since the restart, Atalanta have really come back down to earth in these final few matches of the season. They do have these types of performances every now and then where you're left wondering what happened to the dynamic, high-octane team we've seen just outmuscle their opponents. We previously talked about how Parma showed PSG how to beat Atalanta, this time Inter showed PSG how to do it, which is to press high and pressure the ball to force turnovers. And on the offensive side, you need to move the ball quickly to escape Atalanta's press. Both Inter and PSG have enough skill in their squads to do that. An Atalanta win would have resulted in their highest finish in club history. Instead, they matched their best finish from last season, which is third place. They did, however, set a record for most points in a single season with 78 and most goals in a single season with 98. For Inter, they finished in second place, which is their highest finish since 2011. Meanwhile, Napoli defeated Lazio 3-1, which we'll cover in more detail in part 3. With the loss, Lazio finished in 4th place, however it was still a massively successful campaign for the Bianco Celesti. Last season they finished in 8th place with 59 points. This year they accumulated 19 more points, and barring the very unlikely event that Roma win the Europa League and Napoli win the Champions League, Lazio will play in the Champions League next year. Like I mentioned, the Inter finished in 2nd place with their win over Atalanta. That's also a huge improvement. Last season, Inter finished in 4th with 69 points and they needed to win their final match to qualify for the Champions League. This year, they improved their point total by 13. Nevertheless, Antonio Conte had some choice words for Inter's management and ownership in his post-match press conference. Conte always has something to say, but this was a pretty serious indictment, namely that management wasn't there for the squad or their coach, during their rough patch. As a result, it's quite possible that Conte does not return to manage this club next season, though it seems he will still be around for the Europa League. At the bottom of the table, Genoa were looking to secure their stay in Serie A with a win over Verona. Verona looked good early, but it was Genoa that opened the scoring in the 13th minute, but Raimi played a nice ball to Larraguer on the right wing. He let the ball bounce and then played a superb ball with his first touch to pick out Sanabria in front of the goal. Sanabria smashed in his header in his first match back since missing three matches with a muscle injury. Sanabria doubled Genoa's lead in the 25th minute. Pandev picked out his run at the top of the box. He timed the run perfectly, received the ball beautifully, and with his first touch he tucked it inside the post to beat the challenging Boris Radunovic. Christian Romero made it 3 just before the break from the corner kick. He leapt over Veloso and Rachmani to win the header, which is not easy to do. That was his first goal of the season. If Napoli didn't have an abundance of center backs, he is a player I would consider in a swap deal with Juventus for Milik, as Juventus owned Romero. Things only got worse for Verona after that. Romero fouled Matteo Piscina, which looked like an innocent foul, but Piscina was in a lot of pain and actually had to be taken off with a stretcher with what appears to be a knee strain. The one criticism I would have of Romero is he is a bit of a reckless tackler. On that foul on Piscina, he was shown a yellow card, which was his 14th of the season. Then in the 62nd minute, he picked up a second yellow, though I actually think that was a bit of a weak call. On the same play, even Juric was shown a red card, so Genoa played the final half hour without a center half, and Verona played the final half hour without their coach. Genoa were already protecting the lead with a full squad, so they really went into lockdown mode after the red card. The match was fairly quiet after that. Amrabat and Kasata got in each other's faces in the final minute of the match and were both immediately shown red cards. This one finished 3-0 for Genoa, so they are staying up and Lecce are the third team to be relegated after Brescia and Spal. I have mixed feelings about this. I think Genoa have more quality in their squad and the Derby della Lanterna is always a fun match, 
But Lecce are a fun side to watch as well, and they're a southern club, and right now there's an imbalance of northern clubs to southern clubs, so it would have been nice to keep Lecce up with Benevento coming up as well. Speaking of Lecce, they were playing Parma at the same time Genoa played Verona. They needed a win to have any chance of surviving. This was a really entertaining match. In the opening minutes, Gianluca Caprari tested Lecce keeper Gabriel from distance, but the keeper was up to the task. Parma opened the scoring on yet another devastating own goal. After a patient build-up, Hernani's shot struck the upright, but it was hit so fiercely that Lucioni didn't have any time to react when the rebound hit him and went into his own goal. In the 13th minute, Klusevski got through on the left side, but his shot from a tight angle was stopped by Gabriel. Caprari nearly doubled Parma's lead in the 15th minute after a lovely give-and-go with Klusevski that sent Caprari clear on goal, but he pulled his shot just wide of the mark. Just as Lecce were starting to apply pressure, they got caught out on the counterattack. Caprari finished the play with a powerful bending effort. Mancosu came ever so close to pulling one back in the 35th minute after Lapadula did really well to steal possession from Bruno Alves in the Parma box. He spotted Mancosu only a few feet from goal with no one to beat, but Mancosu took his eye off the ball just long enough to step on the ball and push it back away from the goal. Mancosu made up for it 5 minutes later. After some careless Parma defending, Mancosu crossed to Barak in front of the goal and he headed in to cut the lead to 1. Moments later, Mancosu had another clear-cut chance, but he rushed his shot, which went straight at Luigi Seppe. Shortly after that, though, Lecce equalized from a corner kick. Biagio Meccariello scored his first-ever goal for Lecce. Andreas Cornelius put Parma back in front early in the second half. Barilla didn't connect well on his shot, and no one picked up Cornelius's run where he tapped into the vacant goal. Neither Gabriel nor the Lecce backline did particularly well on this play. Mancosu nearly equalized in the 56th minute, but it really wasn't his night. His shot was inches away from the post, and it was also inches away from the sliding Lapadula. Seconds later, Parma came back the other way. Caprari dribbled past a couple of defenders before getting his shot off, but Gabriel made an excellent save to keep it out. Roberto Inglese came in off the bench in the 62nd minute, and in the 66th minute, he restored the two-goal lead by getting a touch on a gorgeous cross from Barilla. Just when you thought this one was over, Lecce immediately came the other way and pulled one back. Donati played an equally gorgeous cross into the box, which Yevin Shakov headed into the post. Lapadula pounced on the rebound with a diving header into the empty goal to make the score 4-3. But that's how this one ended. At the end of the day, this result didn't really matter because Genoa won anyway. So after successive promotions to reach Serie A for the first time in 7 years, Lecce are heading back to Serie B. In other action, Juventus played Roma which was really a friendly for these sides. Other than perhaps preparing for European competition, neither side had much to play for, which was reflected in the starting lineups. Juventus started Luca Zanimacchia at left wing, Simone Muratore at center mid, and Gianluca Frabotta at left back, Ronaldo Dybala and Delict didn't suit up, and Chiellini, Quadrado, Alexandro, Bentancur, and Ramsey all started on the bench. Roma started Ricardo Calafiori at left mid, Gonzalo Villar at center mid, and Daniele Fusato in goal, Calafiori and VR were both excellent in this match. Kolarov, Bruno Perez, Diawara, Mkhitaryan, Carlos Perez, and Eden Dzeko all started on the bench. Surprisingly, Justin Clivert and Cengiz Under made substitute appearances. They seem to be the two most likely players to be sold this summer. It only took Gonzalo Higuain five minutes to open the scoring from a corner kick. Higuain started the match with Ronaldo and Dybala not playing in this one. Both of them were happy to see their fellow strike partner get on the score sheet in what could be his final Serie A match with Juventus. Roma equalized with a corner kick of their own. Roma's veteran striker Nicolo Kalinic headed in to make the score 1-1. 
Calafiori thought he gave Roma the lead in the 37th minute when he thumped in a volley with his off foot, but the goal was disallowed because the ball went out of play before it bent back in again. Shortly after that, Calafiori won a penalty. He did well to control the ball on the left side of the box, and just when it looked like he was going to volley, he cut back into the box. There's not much Danilo could do to get out of the way, but he was still called for obstruction. Diego Perotti stepped up and put the penalty away to give Roma the lead. Perotti scored a second in the 52nd minute, but it was Nicolo Zaniolo who deserved all the credit. He won possession in his own half and made a similar run to the one he made on the wonder goal against Spal, but this time he played the ball through to Perotti and he put it away. Even nearly pulled one back in the 60th minute, but Ramsey's shot hit the upright and stayed out. Roma went on to win the match 3-1. After the match, Juventus collected their winner's medals and there was a celebration for Gianluca Rocchi's retirement from officiating having officiated the second most matches in Serie A history, which Twitter made a meal of. I have to be honest, I fell for some of the Twitter edits myself and I sent some of the pictures to troll my Juventino friends, but they quickly put me in my place. Rounding out the week, Milan defeated Cagliari 3-0. Milan were the only team to go undefeated since the restart with 9 wins and 3 draws. Ibrahimovic missed a penalty in the first half and scored his 10th of the season in the second half and Giacomo Bonaventura played his final match with the Rossoneri. Fiorentina defeated Spal 3-1, Bologna drew Torino 1-1, Brescia drew Sampdoria 1-1 and Udinese beat Sassuolo 1-0 in matches that didn't matter for any of those teams. So with that, here are the final standings. Juventus won their 9th consecutive Scudetto. Inter, Atalanta, and Lazio finished in 2nd, 3rd, and 4th to qualify for the Champions League. Roma finished 5th, so they will enter into the group stage of the Europa League. Milan finished 6th, so they will play in the qualifying round of the Europa League. Napoli finished 7th, but won the Coppa Italia, so they will play in the group stage of the Europa League as well. Sassuolo were one of the better clubs since the restart, they finished in 8th. Verona were one of the worst clubs since the restart, but they still managed to finish in 9th, tied with Fiorentina and Parma. Bologna finished in 12th on 47 points, 2 points clear of Udinese and Cagliari. Sampdoria, Torino, and Genoa managed to avoid relegation, finishing in 15th, 16th, and 17th respectively. Lecce were relegated on the final day of the season, so they will head back to Serie B with Brescia and Spal, who finished at the bottom of the table. Moving on to Serie B, the final round of the 2019-2020 campaign was played on Friday, Heading into the round, we already knew that Benevento and Crotone were being promoted and that Spezia, Pordenone, and Cittadella had secured their places in the promotion playoff. Spezia defeated Salernitana 2-1, so they finished in third and get a bye into the semifinal of the playoff. Pordenone drew Cremonese 2-2 and Cittadella beat Antella 3-2, so Pordenone and Cittadella both finished on 58 points. Pordenone have the better head-to-head record, so they finish in fourth, which is important because that means they too get a bye to the semifinals of the playoff. Kevo beat Pescara 1-0, so they remain in 6th. Empoli beat last place Livorno to move up to 7th from 10th place. And Frosinone snuck into the playoff by drawing Pisa 1-1. Even though they finished tied on points, Frosinone owned the tiebreaker. So the playoff bracket is set. The way it works is the top two teams being Spezia and Pordenone get buys to the semifinals. In the quarterfinals, the highest seed plays against the lowest. So Kevo play against Empoli and the winner of that match will play Spezia. Cittadella play Frosinone, and the winner of that match will play Pordenone. The quarterfinals are single matches, which will be played on August 4th and 5th. The semifinals are two leg ties. The first legs will be played on the 8th and 9th, and the second legs will be played on the 11th and 12th. The finals is also two legs, which will be played on the 16th and the 20th. At the bottom of the table, we've known for a while now that Livorno will be relegated, 
but there was plenty to play for there too. Cosenza beat Juve Stabia in a match of huge consequence. With the loss, Juve Stabia have been relegated as well, which is sad to see because they're from Campania. Meanwhile, with the win, Cosenza jumped up to 16th and secured their safety. Cosenza finished the season with 5 consecutive wins. At the end of round 33, they were 2nd to last in the table, 6 points back of the relegation playoff and 9 points back of safety. That also meant that despite beating Crotone 2-0, Trapani are the 3rd team to be relegated. Perugia missed their chance at safety losing to Venezia 3-1, so Perugia will play Pescara in the relegation playout. That is a two-legged tie that will be played on August 7th and 14th. And rounding out the week, Benevento ended their amazing season with a win, defeating Ascoli 4-2. So that'll do it for part 2. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's win over Lazio. Okay, so we'll close the pod with a review of Napoli's win over Lazio. Final checks for the match official. And we're up and running in Forigrotta. It's Napoli against Lazio. The home side start again with Koulibaly. Andres Mertens. Lovely ball from Mario Rui. This is Jelinski. Mertens shooting chance for Fabian Ruiz. It's deflected. And Napoli have the lead. Fabian Ruiz on target inside the opening 10 minutes. The helping hand from a deflection. Strakosha unable to claw it away. And it's Napoli who strike first. Parolo now. Lovely ball to Marusic. Trying to isolate Di Lorenzo. This is Immobile. Breaks kindly for Marusic. And Immobile has number 36. Lazio level, and he is level with Gonzalo Higuain. We've played the two minutes of added time, and there goes the half-time whistle. And we're back underway in Naples. Lazio season in Signe's escaped here, and this is Dries Mertens. Unable to hit the target, penalty kick. The challenge was late from Parolo. Mertens got the shot away. Parolo went lunging in. And Napoli will have the chance to retake the lead from 12 yards. Insigne is so reliable from 12 yards. It's Lorenzo Insigne. Comfortably done. Napoli back in front. Mertens won the penalty. Insigne dispatched it. Insigne is so reliable from 12 yards. It's Lorenzo Insigne. Comfortably done. Napoli back in front, Mertens won the penalty, Insigne dispatched it. Di Lorenzo, what an engine he's got. Lozano at the back post, instead it's Mertens, and this is Politano. And Napoli surely have all three points. Beautifully worked. It's on here, long by Vavro. 
There goes the full-time whistle, Giampaolo Calvarese. Also calls time on his career as a referee. As you heard, this one finished 3-1 for Napoli. So as we always do, we'll start with the lineups. Simone Inzaghi only made one change to the lineup that started against Brescia. Thomas Strakosha started in goal as usual. Inzaghi shifted his back line a bit. Francesco Acerbi played on the left side of the centre-back trio with Luis Felipe in the middle and Patrick on the right. Acerbi put in his usual solid performance. He showed his class when he was subbed off in the 63rd minute before walking back to his own bench. He actually walked over to Gattuso to give him his best. Luis Felipe had his ups and downs in the match. He made a very important interception on a Fabian pass that would have sent Di Lorenzo clear on goal, but he also had a role in two of the three Napoli goals, as well as the scrum at the end of the match. The one change Inzaghi made to his starting 11 was Adam Marusic, who started at left wing back over Joni. That actually worked out quite well. Marusic seemed to find quite a bit of space on the left side, which is how he assisted on Lazio's goal. He also came close to scoring in the 77th minute with a difficult header off the bounce. He made decent contact, but the header went just wide of the mark. Manuel Lazzari started at right wing back, but he struggled to create much. He was matched up against Mario Rui. Lazzari's success really depends on the service he gets from his teammates, which was really limited with how well Napoli played. Inzaghi also shifted his center midfielders. Marco Parolo started in the middle with Luis Alberto on his left and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic on his right. Parolo also had an up-and-down match. He played a really nice ball to Marusic on the wing in the build-up to the goal. However, he also caught Mertens with a rather reckless tackle in the box, leading to Napoli's second goal. Luis Alberto was fairly subdued in this match. His best play was a run down the middle of the field in the 62nd minute, but his pass for Correa was a tad too heavy. Sergei Milinkovic-Savic had a fairly quiet match as well. He did manage a shot on target from a free kick, but it lacked power and Ospina saved it easily. Up top were Chiro Immobile and Yaukin Correa. That combination has worked a lot better than the pairing of Immobile and Caicedo. Correa, along with Marusic, was one of the few bright spots for Lazio in this match. In the first half, he did well to draw a yellow card on Koulibaly with a clever flick around the defender. In the 56th minute, he made an excellent run in the box, but hit the upright from a tight angle. Ospina should have been positioned better, so fortunately for him, the shot stayed out. Immobile, of course, scored his 36th goal of the season to tie Gonzalo Higuain's record. We'll talk about the goal in a bit, but like Lazzari, Immobile needs service to succeed, which was lacking in this match. As we saw in the goal, though, he is very opportunistic, and he doesn't need much service. Gattuso made 7 changes to his starting 11 once again. Alex Meret was sidelined with a minor intestinal disorder, so David Ospina started in goal. Ospina didn't have much to do in this match. In the first half, he did make me question whether he really is better than Meret with his feet. He played 2 balls straight out of play and 1 ball straight back to Lazio after being pressured. That said, I do still think he is better on the ball than Meret. With Carnetsis on his way to Lille, I do wonder whether De Laurentiis keeps Ospina another season before deciding whether Meret is really the keeper of the future, although he does need to get rid of an international spot to make way for Victor Osimhen. At the back, Costas Manolas returned from his rib injury. He seemed a step behind. He was late on a number of tackles. Around the 68th minute, he won a tackle with his chest, but appeared to elbow Correa, which was actually pretty hard to see. Some were calling for a straight red on that play. I don't think there was any malicious intent there, but he was a repeat offender, so the yellow card was warranted. He also had the unenviable task of marking Immobile on the goal. Manolas played alongside Kaladu Koulibaly in the middle. Koulibaly put in yet another solid performance. With the offers we've seen so far, it seems more and more likely 
that Koulibaly will spend another season with Napoli. If so, I'm really curious to see how Gattuso spreads his minutes between Koulibaly, Manolas, Maksimovic, and Rachmani who's on his way in, as I don't see Gattuso changing formation. It also makes me wonder about the future of Sebastiano Luperto. Koulibaly and Manolas are 29 and Maksimovic is 28, so if Koulibaly stays for another season, then I think the best move is to loan Luperto out for a year or two. He's still only 23, so he can get some first-team experience, and if he plays well, then you can bring him back to succeed some of those guys. Giovanni Di Lorenzo returned to his starting role at right back. He was very good as well. Both of our fullbacks like getting forward, which is very much a part of Sadi's philosophy, but it's also something that Gattuso had experience with from his playing days at Milan with the likes of Cafu. Mario Rui is becoming more and more important at left back, particularly for his offensive contributions. In this match, he played the long ball through to Zelinski in the build-up to Fabian's goal, and he nearly scored one himself, but his effort bent wide of the goal. In the midfield, Stanislav Lobotka started at Regista, where he continues to impress. He's so reliable in that role, and he does a great job of supporting both the attack and the defense. He made a really nice tackle on Lazzari early in the second half that abruptly ended Lazio's counterattack. Fabian returned to the starting 11, so Elmas returned to the bench. Fabian had an excellent match, not only because he scored, but also because of how well he passed the ball in this one. He found Insigne early in the match to set up a good chance. Later in the half, he played a beautiful long ball to switch play to Insigne on the opposite side of the pitch. Piotr Zielinski completed the midfield. He had a good match as well. He made a key run in the build-up to Fabian's goal. He also played Insigne through in the build-up to the penalty. Once again, he had a shot from distance that just missed the post. He seems to be having one of those close shots every match. If he can just correct that, perhaps by taking a bit of pace off the shot, then Zielinski could accumulate his fair share of goals. He might be lacking confidence with all the misses. In the second half, he had a clear chance on the left side of the box, but instead elected to cut the ball back, resulting in a turnover. Up top, Jose Calion started his final Serie A match with Napoli in a familiar front three alongside Lorenzo Insigne and Dries Mertens, who returned from his tailbone injury. Calihon came out wearing the captain's armband, which is a really nice sign of respect from his teammates, though he didn't contribute too much on the pitch. At the start of the second half, he made one of his patented runs to the back post, but Merton's ball was a touch too long. Nevertheless, it put a big smile on Calihon's face. He came close to scoring in the 71st minute after a beautiful interplay between Insigne and Mertens. Calihon hit the volley sweetly, but it just missed the far post. Calihon came off in the 77th minute, which was a beautiful moment. Players from both sides rushed over to give him a hug. If there were any doubts about him leaving, the way he exited the match made it pretty clear that he'll be moving on. Dries Mertens showed how important he is to Napoli's attack, even if he doesn't score. He was involved in all three goals. On the first, he laid the ball off to Fabian before he beat Strakosha. On the second, he won the penalty. And on the third, he assisted Politano. Finally, Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing. Once again, his play was very positive and once again, he struggled to finish. He had an excellent chance in the 13th minute, but his left-footed shot narrowly missed the goal. In the 49th minute, he did hit the target with some power, but he caught a little too much of the goal and Strakosha made the save. As much as Insigne has struggled to score an open play, he's been excellent from the penalty spot. I don't know if there's anyone cooler than him from the spot right now. Unfortunately, Insigne had to be removed from the match in the 82nd minute after picking up a thigh injury. You do have to wonder if Gattuso left him in too long. Gattuso normally changes his wingers between the 60th and the 70th minute. He probably left him in longer as preparation for the Champions League. I know injuries can happen any time, but the longer he's out there, the more likely he was to pick up a knock. 
So those are our player assessments. Next, let's talk about the goals. And I typically only talk about the goals that Napoli have conceded, but today I'll break down all four. Fabian scored the first goal of the match. This play started with Napoli winning possession about a minute before the goal by pressing high and forcing Lazio to play the ball long. Other than a blocked pass by Marco Parolo, Napoli completed 18 passes in the build-up without a Lazio player touching the ball leading up to the goal. It was a very patient build-up. Twice the Partenope worked their way up the pitch and when nothing was there, they didn't force the play. Instead, they came back and restarted. Eventually, they played the ball around to the left side of the field where Insigne laid the ball off to Mario Rui and he played a gorgeous through ball to pick out Zielinski's run on the left wing. Fabian finished the play with a shot with the inside of his left boot from the top of the box. The shot did take a slight deflection to give the ball a bit more dip. Strakosha managed to get a finger on the ball so it's quite possible that he would have made the save had it not been deflected, but as we'll see, lucky bounces go both ways. Ciro Immobile equalized for Lazio. This was a rare goal conceded by Napoli that was not on a counterattack, and it was not the result of a stupid mistake. It wasn't even poor defending, really. This play started with a really nice switch from Marco Parolo to spot Marusic's run on the left wing. Immobile's pass was blocked by Lobotka, but the ball landed perfectly for Marusic on the left side of the box. That was Lazio's lucky bounce that I alluded to a moment ago. Beyond that lucky bounce though, you have to tip your hat to both Marusic and Immobile on this play. Marusic played a perfect pass to pick out Immobile's run. Immobile timed his run perfectly, which was later confirmed by the VAR. The defending from Manolas was a bit lazy. He should have tried to get goal side or slid to block the shot. Instead, he tried to shove Immobile off the ball, which didn't work. I appreciate the apprehension about sliding in the box, but if Immobile goes down there, the penalty is being called anyway, so it's worth the risk to slide. Credit to Immobile though for not going down and for the excellent finish to beat Ospina at the near post. So that brings us to Napoli's second goal which was the penalty kick taken by Lorenzo Insigne in the 54th minute. In my opinion Napoli deserved the goal for how dominant they were at the start of the second half. The build up to the goal was really nice as well. Zielinski played a lovely through ball to Insigne on the left side of the box. Insigne cut it back to Mertens. This was yet another example of the chemistry between these two. They always know where each other is. Laziali weren't too happy about the call, this one was really close. There was definitely contact there, you see on the replay that Parolo did hit Merton's foot. Parolo argued that Merton's left his foot out to draw the foul. The real question is, did the tackle impede Merton's ability to take the shot? Again, that's really difficult to tell on this play. In the past, that call probably wasn't given, but as we've talked about before, this season there appears to be a conscious effort on the part of the league to award more penalties and therefore increased the number of goals scored. Like the handball, these calls have been wildly inconsistent. On the broadcast, they talked about how in the Roma-Fiorentina match, Roma were awarded a penalty for a challenge by Fiorentina keeper Pietro Terracciano on Edin Dzeko well after the shot was taken. I personally thought that call was much worse than this one. Then in the Spal-Inter game, there was a similar challenge by Samir Handanovic on Gabriel Strafezza and the penalty wasn't given. Nevertheless, Insigne stepped up and coolly picked his corner. Finally, Matteo Politano scored the third goal and his second since the restart. This was another beautiful team goal that started with an excellent slide tackle from Gulam just inside the Lazio half to stop the counter. Napoli's movement off the ball was really key to this goal. First, he had Politano move into space on the right wing to receive the Lorenzo's pass. Again, we saw how Napoli's fullbacks play like wingbacks as Di Lorenzo continued his run, which is not something a typical right back does. Politano saw it and played the return pass toward the right side of the box. Then you had Mertens move into space. He looked like he was running straight to goal, 
then cut in at the top of the box to create some separation from Luis Felipe. Meanwhile, Politano had continued his run, which Lazio's defenders seemed too tired to follow. Mertens stepped up like he was going to shoot, but at the very last second, he laid the ball off for Politano. Politano did well to receive the pass, wait for Strakosha to lean to the right, and then finish to Strakosha's left. So those were the goals. The last thing I want to talk about are the scrums that happened in this match. The first heated moment happened between Gattuso and Inzaghi after Costas Manolas appeared to elbow Yaquin Correa, though I personally think Correa made a meal of it. In the end, cooler heads prevailed. In the 94th minute, things got really heated. It all happened so quickly that watching it live, it was difficult to make out what actually happened. I had to replay that sequence four or five times to get it all. And once I did, I realized that this was mostly Calvarez's fault. So here's what happened. Milinkovic-Savage played the ball back to Luis Felipe. Mertens closed them down, but was late with the tackle and did get a bit of a hack on Felipe. Calvarez should have called a foul on Mertens, but instead he played on. Because of the foul, Felipe lost the ball, so he lunged for it with his studs up. It appears Lozano did get there first, and Felipe took him out. And while I'm sure that's difficult to call in real time, Calvarez definitely would have seen the studs up. He easily could have called a foul there, but I suspect he didn't because he also didn't call the first foul on Mertens. Then Mertens charged Felipe down and got another hack in, which led to the scrum. Surprisingly, the player that came to Mertens' defense when Milinkovic-Savage and Felipe approached him was Elif Elmas. Some people might say that's immature. For me, I love to see the passion and fire in our young players. When they did eventually restart play, Calvarez almost immediately blew the final whistle, which in itself was controversial. There were still 30 seconds remaining in added time, and that doesn't account for the stoppage from the scrum, which lasted about 2 minutes. Then, after the final whistle blew, Marusic goes up to win the ball against Gulam, which leads to another scrum. The camera then cuts to Gattuso, who is fuming on the sidelines and had to be restrained by Lazio sporting director Ilitare, who by the way is an enormous human being, way bigger than I had realized. And then finally, you see Maksimovic giving a bald Lazio staffer a deadly stare down. Watching this all play out, I had no clue what was going on, but the story came out in the papers the following morning. The bald man I was referring to is Lazio's physiotherapist, Alex Maggi. He called Gattuso a terone di merda, which means a southern piece of shit, which may not sound that offensive to anyone outside of Italy. That's the literal translation, but for anyone from the south of Italy, it's about the most offensive thing you can say to them. Raffaele Arieme just published an article about this on Calcio Mercato on Tuesday morning, and he defines Teroni as children of a lesser god who are culturally, anthropologically, and economically inferior to those who are lucky enough to be born in the north. Earlier in the season, we heard a similar insult slung by Giampiero Gasperini and his team manager Mirko Moyoli toward a Napoli fan who was provoking him ahead of Atalanta's match against Juventus. For those who don't know, the north of Italy is decidedly wealthier than the south. No one really knows why, that's something that has puzzled historians, politicians, and economists for a while. But regardless of the reason, it is the reason southern Italians are discriminated against. So comments like these, or chants from ultras in northern stadiums calling the south diseased, are highly offensive to southern Italians. On Monday, Maggi did issue a formal apology to everyone, especially Gattuso, though I suspect he was advised by Lazio's lawyer to do so in case this incident is investigated by the FIGC's prosecutor's office. So that's our review of Napoli's final match of the 2019-2020 Serie A campaign. That will also do it for episode 32. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, and if you could take a moment or two to leave a review and a rating, we'd greatly appreciate that. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5 
or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. We'll talk to you again later in the week where we'll preview Napoli's Champions League match against Barcelona. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Network.